Chapter Seven of All the World by Charles Monroe Sheldon. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Adelde Pinaroles. Chapter Seven. Matters were in the same condition when Sunday dawned again. The government case against Randall had been published by the local press, and a sensation had followed. Doctor Ward found he had only one theme for his sermon. During the week, scores of his young people had been to see him. In addition to the boys of Company Two Forty One, the enthusiasm for the new adventure was growing far beyond anything he had dreamed. His message was a repetition of that of the Sunday before, only this time directed to the outlining of the program to be followed in carrying out the divine command. There were many things to tell this group of young heroes of the Marne and the vessel and the Oise, who had lived in the atmosphere of excitement and of great deeds so long that nothing trivial or unimportant had any attraction for them and there was so much to tell them of the new things at home, of which they were ignorant, many of which, like the organization of the American Missionary College and the fact of national prohibition, even if known, had to be emphasized to these eager souls looking out on a new America and into the gateways of a new world, whose every land under the sun was waiting to see what America would do to build up the world democracy she had so splendidly helped to create. The imagination of these young people was stirred to battle fervor by Dr. Ward's sermon. A hush of God's spirit fell over the congregation at its close. The most thrilling assurance came to minister and people that the Christ was in the house. The carrying out of his great command to go into all the world was evidently the one thing the church needed to realize his presence. All through the years before the war, no great passion had filled the church in America except the passion for self-development. Now it seemed to the people sitting there in the quiet of that room as if a real reason for existence had been given them. Here sat through the audience their own sons, husbands, brothers, and lovers, consecrating themselves to this thrilling adventure of conquest of all the world, to the sway of Christ Jesus as Lord of all. The great armies had disbanded, and the soldiers had come home to go back into industrial and agricultural life. And for the first time since man began his struggle for life on the globe, a universal peace reigned. All doors were open to the gospel. Millions were hungering for the truth. The world was thirsting for God, and America, with her wealth practically untouched even by the war's exhausting drain, with her fields ripe with food, with her thousands of young men and women filled with the adventure of action, seemed to wait for the call of the divine reveille to awake and go forth to the greatest task that humanity had ever laid upon it, a new and glorious call to the colors of the blood-stained cross. Dr. Ward made no appeal for volunteers this Sunday, but that evening, after the services of the day were over, the little study at the parsonage was not big enough to hold the groups that came. They were quiet young men, these ex-soldiers, but as their pastor, Dr. Ward, knew from their individual histories that he was facing heroes, and spirits tempered in the great discipline of danger, his heart thrilled as he thought of the wonderful material America now possessed for the Christianizing of the world, material full of courage, patience, endurance, intelligence, passion, vision, imagination, love of country and all it stood for, men who had known what it meant to fight for freedom, and had caught more than a glimpse of what that freedom meant to the world. No such evangelizing forces had ever been known in the history of the church. His prayer, as he led this expectant group, was a prayer of desire that the church in America might see her great, her wonderful wealth of missionary power, and use it to conquer the world for a democracy that would be Christ. Prayer filled the room, the hush of the Spirit's power awed this little group. 
and before Dr. Ward dismissed them, he outlined a simple form of expression of their pledges, and they talked it over together, agreeing finally on these statements as defining in simple language their purpose and the way to attain it. Dr. Ward said in explanation, We do not need any organization beside the church. All that these sentences are intended to do is shape our own thoughts and help define it for our action. But we need to remember that Christ's commands, while eternal, are also to be interpreted in the terms and under the conditions of the age in which we live. That is the beauty of his teachings, their adaptability to every person in every country in every age and to all the world. Suppose, then, we let the following define for us our object, our purpose, and the means of reaching it. We choose for our name and motto, All the World. Our object is to make Christian disciples everywhere. We pledge ourselves to the surface, after careful preparation, going wherever we may be best fitted to go. The sources of our power we recognize to be, 1. Jesus Christ, the Redeemer of all men, and the only real Reconstructor of the world. 2. Faith in prayer and the daily practice of it. 3. Faith in the Holy Spirit to show men the truth as it is in Jesus. 4. Faith in the possible regeneration of any one of any race. 5. Faith in a united Christendom to do what individual Christianity cannot do. We believe that making all nations disciples mean 1. Working for the real union of all believers. 2. Seeking the help of the entire nation in the use of power. 3. Centralizing missionary effort by the union of different denominational bodies. 4. Appealing to the heroic and adventurous in young life to do more than militarism can do to inspire courage and sacrifice. 5. The elimination of race, hatred, and prejudice as a cardinal doctrine of our pledge. 6. All our effort centers in Jesus Christ, who is alive today and all-powerful in heaven and on earth. 7. And our creed is his creed, supreme love to God and supreme love to fellow man. After the young people had gone on home, one young woman stayed with the family for the night. She is a vital part of this history, and a word is necessary about her. Alberta Chester had been engaged to Albert Ward when the war broke out. The date had been set for their marriage while he was in training camp. Then the order had suddenly come from headquarters, which put Albert and a few other officers at a few hours' notice on a transport, and three weeks afterwards Alberta received a cable, the first word after long days of silence, saying her lover was somewhere in France. The first letter told her that he had been one of a dozen specially selected men from the States to go over and confer with the French aviators on matters of technique and airplane construction, in which Albert had begun to prove himself a rare expert. Then, like a bomb out of an invisible airplane, there fell like in the heart of Alberta the news of Albert's death in an air duel. He had been sent up to experiment with a new type of machine, had met a German squadron, had sent down two of their planes, and then had been mortally wounded by four enemies, who set upon him in a body. He was able to guide his machine back over the French lines, and died in the arms of his fellow officers, who wept honest tears over his beautiful body, and buried it with high military honors in the soil of France, sending back to Dr. and Mrs. Ward and Alberta a note signed by names, some of them afterward distinguished, giving the last record of Albert's heroism, including the prayer they had found folded neatly in one of his breast pockets. Albert's silver aviation badge finally came to Dr. Ward with his other personal effects. When the package was opened, Alberta was present. She fingered with tearless eyes one little token after another, but when the badge dropped out of a bit of tissue paper, she held out her hand, and Dr. Ward let her take the symbol of the airman. 
and Alberta took it to her lips, and with the act her grief burst in a flood of tears that relieved her breaking heart. Without a word of protest, Dr. Ward saw her pin the badge on her dress, and there she wore it always. Alberta Chester was neither in her own feeling, maid, wife, or widow. The vision of the memory of her lover continued in her almost like a sainted personality, enshrined in her soul, something that might have been a lover-husband, father of beautiful children, around whom her arms might have been enfolded, as she with him trained them into noble lives for the good of the world. She was not a girl to live in the solitude of her grief. She had been very practical in her thought and action. And so Albert's death did not materially change Alberta's daily struggle. Her old mother had been dependent on her work, and she had been a stenographer in one of Rufus Randall's offices at sixty dollars a month. As the war went on, and man after man was drafted and went away, the other places were vacant. The station agent at the Bradford Railway Station enlisted. To the consternation of Dr. Ward and all of Alberta's friends, she applied for the position. She wanted more physical exercise than stenographer's work could give, and in course of time the Bradford travelling public grew accustomed to see Alberta, clad in overalls, selling tickets at the window, and then going out on the platform, throwing trunks up on the truck, checking them, and helping the trainman shove them into the car. But Alberta, after work hours, and clad in a distinctly feminine garb, was another person. She sat in the family circle this Sunday evening as one of them, respected and loved for the strength and poise and endurance she had shown in the great experience through which she had passed. They were all discussing the events of the day, and Dr. Ward had just checked off all the names of those who would make definite decisions, when Alberta said suddenly, "'Father, you have not put my name down.' Dr. Ward looked up in astonishment. "'Alberta, you are not going to leave us.' "'I want to go to France. I want to see Albert's grave. I've been studying French language and history all winter. I can help in the orphanages. I can do reconstruction work in the orchards. I can preach the gospel in some form to the people. And I cannot bear to stay here if Esther and Dick are gone.' And so Alberta became a part of the great adventure that had all the world for its theatre, and her part was played so well that it has a special importance in this narrative. Monday morning, following that eventful second Sunday, Dr. Ward was called up on long distance from Bayview before he was through breakfast. Chaplain Willis Hunter's voice sounded with special and peculiar emphasis. "'Dr. Ward, I want to see you this morning if you are not too busy. May I come over?' "'By all means, Hunter. I'll be more than glad to see you.' One of my men will bring me over in his car. Look for me before noon. Stay to dinner with us, Dr. Ward said, but he found that Hunter had already hung up. Before eleven o'clock, Hunter appeared in his friend's car, and his first words revealed to Dr. Ward his tremendous interest in the errand that had brought him over the forty-five miles between Bayview and Bradford. Yesterday I presented to my people the great adventure to go into all the world, and the result was so wonderful, Dr. Ward, I felt I must come over and see you about it. The spirit was with us in great power. Seventy-five of my young people are ready to take up the great commission and go into all the world. We had a wonderful meeting last night. I feel almost frightened over some phases of it. Yesterday was my first Sunday home with my church. I tried to talk on my experiences and my adventures. But without any volition of my own, my message was directed to the great command. People broke down all over the church. The thing got beyond any control of mine. I do not know where it will lead to. Only, as I said a week ago when I went with the boys here, I believe the life we have just been living is comparatively uneventful by the side of this big thing we are going to. I want to counsel with you. I feel the need of all the wisdom and strength I can get. This thing is of God. 
If it spreads through our churches and over America, it will revolutionize our church life, and what it will do in the world at large, only the divine can measure. Chaplain Hunter spent the day with Dr. Ward. He and his churchmen took dinner with his family, and Hunter had the joy of a visit with Dick, although he could not fail to detect the fact that some unusual and trying experience was being felt by the boy of his whose life he had saved over there. But everyone felt the contagion of Hunter's fiery enthusiasm. His last words that afternoon as he started back to Bayview were, The age of miracles is not over, Doctor. I look for the Spirit's power in this matter as I have never seen it not even on that last wonderful battlefield across the Meuse where we were finally victorious. That was late Monday afternoon. Dick had been roused by the visit of his old chaplain, but as soon as he was gone, the depression under which he had been living since his last set of Rukwa seemed to weigh him down, and after brooding in his room a while he came out of the house and walked recklessly downtown. Dick walked down one block, crossed over one of the diagonal paths leading through the courthouse grounds, and going on across the street on the other side, found himself in front of the office of the evening journal. An unusual crowd was on the sidewalk reading the bulletins, and Dick went over. When he caught sense of the first note on the bulletin, he heard the newsboys calling it out as they came running down the street. Rufus Randolph, convicted as a profiteer by the government, must serve a sentence. That was as far as the bulletin went. Dick stopped a boy with papers and bought a copy. He read enough after the first headlines to see that Randolph had been found guilty and unless he was pardoned by the president, he would have to serve a term in the federal prison. Rukwa! The name escaped him as he crushed the paper in his pocket. And then acting as he always had, on the impulse that first prompted him, he turned out of the square towards the street where Rukwa lived. When he reached the house, he saw a small group of men gathered on the opposite side of the street. Dick went on up the walk steadily and rang the bell. As he waited for the door to open, his mind was quite clear as to his action in either case whether it should be Requa or her father who should first appear. End of chapter 7